before we dive back into our study in the book of John. This past Thursday, some of you were at home and you turned on your TV and pretty much every station had Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford being interviewed. And some of you watched it, and I'm going to guess those of you that watched it did not watch it just as it was some boring thing, but were enthralled and maybe even emotionally moved as you watched it. It was a very emotional thing. Many people watched it and were not impartial at all. Politics aside, now look, emotion was fueled by politics on both sides, but pushing politics to the side, there was other emotion that went into it. For any woman who has ever had, or any man who has ever been sexually abused, when Dr. Ford gives up and testifies about an alleged thing that happened, there's an emotional reaction to that, to somebody who's had history of that. And that emotion is immediately to give empathy towards this person who is discussing these things, and also to build up anger towards the one who's alleged of these things. On the flip side of that, you have Judge Kavanaugh who gets up and, and defiantly and, and, and definitely says this never occurred. And those who are there to support him and believe this is a man who is upright and just, who is being slandered and is having his name brought through the mud, this is the feelings of those people. Look, I don't know the man personally. I don't know if anybody in here knows him personally. But we all had some, those of us watching, had some kind of emotional pull as we viewed this. But there was such an emotional pull of those who thought, man, it's just not fair for someone to get their name dragged through the mud. If these allegations are, are unfounded, uncorroborated, how unfair that is. And the emotion that went into that, and even looking at social media, what people would post, and all these things, and I thought, wow, what about us as Christians? Us as Christians, when we think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, a man who was slandered, a man who continues to this day to get his name drugged through the mud. What's our reaction to that? Is it more emotional to watch a man on TV who testifies these things never happened, Judge Kavanaugh? Or is it more real for us to think about all the people around us that every day slander Jesus Christ? That use his name even as a curse word? Think about it. When you hear his name as a curse word, what does that do to you? Does that cause a reaction? Does it cause you to go, oh, or does it cause you to get upset? Because our Lord's name is used as a curse word. This morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 5 and Jesus, our Lord and Savior. The one who is perfect, the one who is perfectly loving, the one who gave his own life for people who would sin against him. Think about that for a second. How many would give their lives for somebody else, period? But how about for those who would wrong you, those who would sin against you? This is Jesus. And Jesus is making the claim in our text that he is one with God, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. And there are people who are plotting to kill him. It started, if you'll recall with me, those of you who've been here in John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man, a man who has been an invalid for 38 years, and Jesus heals him. you think that would be a glorious thing. But instead, initially they said, it's the Sabbath. And this man's carrying his bed. He can't carry a bed on the Sabbath. And then the man tells him, well, it was Jesus. Jesus told me, stand up, walk, and pick up your mat. So now they come up to Jesus. How could you do this thing on the Sabbath, completely blind to the fact 
that he just did a miracle. And now on top of that, Jesus responds by claiming he's the same as the Father, that they're one. And now they want to kill him. So this morning, if you were taking notes, here's what we're going to have this morning. The sermon title is Unbelievers on Trial. That's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see how Jesus puts them on trial. Unbelievers on trial, we'll be looking at John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47 this morning. And if you have a Bible or you have the bulletin this morning, if you could open up to John chapter 5, starting at verse 30, and rise to your feet as we honor the public reading of God's Word this morning. John chapter 5, I'll be reading verses 30 through 47 this morning. Starting at verse 30, we read, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you've never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So reads God's inerrant, infallible, and holy word. Please be seated, church. So here Jesus begins, and in your mind's eye, I want you to imagine it's almost as he takes on a courtroom scene. You're going to see the word witness in here over and over and over again. Those who are bearing testimony over and over, much like you would see in a courtroom. But here you would have the Jews coming and attacking Jesus, trying to persecute him and trying to plot to kill him. And yet Jesus is going to turn this around and he's going to put them on trial. Jesus is now going to be like playing the prosecutor. He's going to bring in witnesses. And there's also going to be a verdict at the end. We see the opening statements. If you look back at the scripture with me, verses 30, 32, Jesus begins and he says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. This is the opening statement right here. This is like courtroom coming out, and this is what he's saying. He's saying, look, first thing, I can do nothing of my own. And if you were here last time we were in the book of John, I believe the title of was Like Father, Like Son. Back in verse 19, Jesus said in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Here's what Jesus is driving at. There is a union between the Father and the Son, that they are one, that as you've seen one, you've seen the other, that you cannot, church, have one without the other. You can't have the Father and not the Son. They are one. Again, Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Again, the whole thing he's driving at is this union. They're one. You can't have one apart from the other. He continues in this opening statement in verse 30. He says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. And again, we see Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 16. He says, even if I do judge, my judgment's true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Jesus continues to drive home. This is the biggest part of this opening. There's union. They are one. That as you look to the Son, you see the Father. And as they look unto the Father, they should see the Son. But here you have the Jews who would say we believe in the Father, but we don't believe in the Son. And this is the argument that Jesus is going to paint out. You cannot have the Father without the Son. He continues in this opening statement, verse 30. He says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Over and over again, Jesus turned and said, not my will, but his will be done. Even in the garden when he was crying out to the Father, if there is any other way, please take this cup from me. What was he talking about, church? What was he agonizing over? The crucifixion, but what's specific about that? The sin of the world coming upon him. Him paying the penalty for the sin of the world. Not that he wasn't willing to give himself, but the separation from the Father that would result. He said, if there's any other way, please take this cup from me. But you remember how he ended that prayer? But not my will, but your will be done. Jesus in our text says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, if we took that line by itself, church, we'd say, wait a minute, does that mean Jesus is a liar? Jesus can't bear testimony about himself? Look at that verse. Doesn't that naturally read that way? But you've got to put yourself back in the context. He's speaking to the Jews. And he's saying, if I come before you and I just say this, you're going to tell me that's not true. So instead, according to Jewish law, there had to be at least two or three witnesses. So Jesus is going to bring in some witnesses. He goes, look, if I just tell you, which, of course, what Jesus says is true. He says, you're not going to believe me. So instead, I'm going to bring witnesses. And he says, by the way, the biggest one in verse 32, there's another who bears witness about me. 
And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He's going to leave it hanging right there. Anybody know who he's referring to? The Father. He's referring to the Father right here. The Father. He's going to talk about it later that he's one of the witnesses. Overall, he and the Father are one. The Father's going to bear witness to this. But now Jesus, being this lead prosecutor in this case, he's going to call some witnesses. Witness number one, he's going to speak of John the Baptist. Do you know what the Jews were waiting for? They were waiting for a Messiah. Their Messiah. And who was supposed to come and prepare the way for their Messiah? A prophet. Who was supposed to make the way straight. You guys remember the man named John the Baptist? Do you remember what he did? He came and made the way straight. They pointed straight to Christ. He was the one they had been waiting for. So the first one he refers to is, here's the witness, witness number one, John the Baptist. Look at uh, verses 33 through 35 with me. He said, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, church, I want to slow down real quick. We have our first witness of John the Baptist. Jesus, put it in context, these guys are coming after him, trying to kill him. They want to plot to kill him. And the first witness he calls up and brings to their attention is John the Baptist, and there's a purpose. He says, so that you might be saved. Now, wait a minute. Think about this. When people are coming at you and accusing you of things and want to do you harm, is that the first thing that comes to your mind? Is, oh, man, I'm concerned about their salvation. No, this is Jesus, the one who came to serve and not be served, the one who came to give his life a ransom for many. And he is the one they're coming after. And he says, look, the Father has sent John the Baptist, the prophet, the last of the prophets, to come and show the way to point to Jesus. And he says, look, you guys even sent to John in the beginning of this letter of John's gospel, chapter 1, verse 19. It says they had sent to John, they sent priests and Levites to question him, asking him, who are you? Anybody remember his answer? Did he say, well, I'm the Christ, I'm the, I'm the coming Messiah? No. He said, I've come to point the way. I've come just as the scriptures have said, that one would come and I in him, who would point to the Savior of the world. And he would say, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. This is the witness. This is John the Baptist, the one who came as a shining lamp. He himself said, I am not the light. But there comes one who is the light. You remember John? John saw something special. He saw, we read in John chapter 1, verse 32, it says, John bore witness, John the Baptist, that he said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. John was a witness of this. And now the testimony is going out to the Jews saying, look, there's the witness. John is the first witness. But according to their Jewish law, that's not enough. One witness, that's not enough. So Jesus is going to go on. He's going to go, okay, witness number two. How about the things you've seen me do, the works that I have done? They bear testimony. So witness number two is the works of Christ. In verse 36 of our text this morning, we read, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, 
the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, in the Gospel of John, as we read through it, he has not recorded everything that Jesus is doing. He said not even all the books in all the world could contain all that Christ has done. But he gives us some miracles. He has told us some things he's done. And he's shown us that the response of the Jews was complete blindness. But Jesus says, look, I have done works before you that you have seen. You haven't given me credit as being the Son of God for him, but you have seen them. If you remember that great dialogue between Jesus and the religious leader Nicodemus, you guys remember that John chapter 3? Even Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 2, he tells Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one else can do these signs unless God is with them. So Jesus is doing stuff that they know there's no way anybody could do this unless God is with them. Now think about some of the prophets of old. Those of you familiar with your scriptures, did other prophets ever do any kind of miracles? Absolutely. Remember Elijah? He prayed, and what happened? It stopped raining. Three and a half years. And then he prayed again, and it started raining. Well, guess what? We need rain. So we got anybody in here who prayed like that? We need some rain. My wife told me, oh, the forecast says two days of rain next week. I will believe it when I see it. I want it. But it's been like 100 degrees. So I'm hoping for it. But there were other men who were able to do miracles. So what makes Jesus different? What makes him God as he proclaims to be? Well, there is one thing that Jesus said that no one else was able to do. Do you remember the whole part about, I'm going to die? And in three days, I'm going to rise from the dead? Does anybody know anybody else in history who's been able to do that? Nobody. Not one. But Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, at this point, has done all kinds of miracles. He's going to culminate with the fact that he's going to give his life and rise from the dead as he said he would. And yet his whole point is that they might be saved. He's going to call a third witness. Third and the biggest witness here is the Father himself. Witness number three. He referenced it in his opening statement, but the Father himself, verses 37 and 38, he says, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Now, I want to slow down real quick. I want you to read those again. Imagine being very pompous and self-righteous and someone telling you, you don't know God. You've never heard him. You don't know who he is. What would be the reaction? Is Jesus soothing them down right now? Is he trying just to calm them down, or is he just giving them truth that's hitting them right here? He is in no way saying, well, let's avoid conflict. He's saying, here's the truth. The truth is in all your, all your self-righteousness. You don't know the Father. These are people who spent their days studying the Scriptures. These are people who spent the days memorizing the Scriptures. And Jesus tells them, you don't know them. You don't know the Father, I mean. Because you don't know him, but I do. He says, the Father bears witness about me. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, after Jesus had been baptized, it says, a voice from heaven came and said, this 
is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father testified of the son. The father gave evidence. This is him. So we have these witnesses. We have the works of Christ. We have John the Baptist. We have the Father who himself says, this is my beloved Son. But we also have, church, what you have right now. And we have a lot more of them than what they had. They had the Old Testament. We have the full New and Old Testament. But the Scriptures bear witness to Jesus. This fourth witness that Jesus brings up is the Scriptures themselves. What these people would spend their day and nights looking at and studying, he says, they speak of me. Witness number four, the Scriptures. Verses 39 and 40, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. This is a hard one. Because they loved the Scriptures. They were to meditate on them day and night. They were to memorize them. Some would have full books of the Old Testament memorized. And they would pride themselves in that. Not much different than those of us who would go to, say, seminary and study the Word of God and think that by studying the Word of God, somehow we're called by God to go and preach His Word. Or somehow by getting a seminary degree, now we're a child of God. It doesn't work that way. These Jews loved the Scriptures. And they loved them because they grew in knowledge. People say, well, knowledge is power. But there is a knowledge scripture that just puffs up. It makes you think you're something because you know something. But it's not what you know about, it's who you know. And the problem is they knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. You know, it's crazy to, to, to imagine how this is impossible. How could you stare at the scriptures? And how could they study them and then have God in human flesh before them and completely reject me? Jesus said, if you knew the scriptures, you would know me because I am in every page of the scriptures. You know, take yourself in your mind's eye. Let's go to a, a beach resort in Hawaii. If you've been, to be, in, if you've been there, you're like, okay, I can do that really easy. If you've never been there, just imagine it's pretty. Okay? And you're on this resort and you go into the, the resort and you get on the elevator and it goes up 10 floors. And as you walk out of the elevator, something catches your eye to the side. And you look over, and there is a window from ceiling to floor, side to side, that looks out over the ocean. And right when you look at it, the sun is going down over the ocean. The, the sky is painted in an array of colors, just gorgeous. And you're like, wow, God, that is amazing. And you look at the water, and the, and the light's flashing off the water. And you're just like, this is the most beautiful picture I've ever seen. And then you hear someone next to you go, wow, that is amazing. And you go, yeah, it sure is. And you look at them, man, that is amazing. And they go, yeah, how did they build this window? I mean, it's from the roof to the, to the floor, and it's from the wall to the wall. And wow, it feels amazing. It's strong. It holds me back. And you're like, what are you talking about? Do you not see what's beyond the window? Do you not see what we're looking at? And all they say is, this is just a mighty work. Whoever built this thing, this window is amazing. That's what the Jews did with the Scriptures. They were in awe of the Scriptures. They took time, scribes, to, to transcribe them and go through and make sure there were no errors in, in what they were doing and see them 
hold them as holy, but they didn't see through them as a window looking to Christ. They missed the whole point. I mean, we can go prophetically on how the Scriptures point to Christ. There's so many different prophecies that are fulfilled that speak about where he would be born, about the miraculous nature of his birth, the list of his ancestry, Scriptures that would allude to his assassination, to his murder, the way he would die. Scriptures that would refer to him sojourning in Egypt. On and on, describing the forerunner, like John the Baptist who would come. Scripture after Scripture that prophesied about how he would suffer, the suffering servant. And yet they knew the Scriptures, but they didn't know him. It's amazing. And Jesus is thinking, if you loved God and you loved the Scriptures, you would love me. And if you truly understood the Scriptures of what you were searching and what you thought you had eternal life in, you would know me. But Jesus says, look, life is not in the Scriptures. Life is in whom is in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are there to point us to Christ, that we might know Him. So here we have four witnesses called by Jesus. He calls John the Baptist says he was sent by God to pave the way just as God had prophesied. He says, there are also the works that I have done before you. You've all testified. You've seen them. He says, there's also the Father himself who's testified of me. And now, he says, the scriptures that you so hold sacred, they point to me. So what are the charges against these people? Jesus not only calls the witnesses, but he now calls the charge. Charge number one, refusal to come to Jesus. I want you to look at that charge. Refusal to come to Jesus. Look at these verses. We read them before, verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Church, do you know where else you could find salvation outside of Jesus Christ? I saw some hand motions like nowhere. Zero. There isn't any other place. There's no other name given under heaven by which we might be saved. It is Jesus Christ alone. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is so amazing that the King of kings, the Lord of lords would come not to be served, but to give himself. Not so that people would have to bow down right before him, but that he would go and bear himself on a cross for them, for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is absolutely amazing. But Jesus said this. He said, you don't only need to know about me. Look, they've all seen him. They all reacted to him. And now they want to kill him. They're not going to say, well, Jesus never existed. That's a fairy tale. They're going to give complete evidence Jesus was real. But they didn't come to him. What does it mean to come to him? Jesus himself would say, come to me. He would say, drink of me, eat of me, dine with me, be one with me. Welcome me in. It's not just about knowing him. It's about knowing him personally. Now, there's a term that we use that Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior. But guess what? He's the Lord and Savior of all. But do you know him that way? Or do you know about him? 
Because all this evidence was before them, yet they refused to come to him. Jesus said in chapter 3, actually the scriptures declared in chapter 3, that many will not come to the light. Do you know why? Because they loved the darkness. We've talked about this before. Those who love darkness will not come to the light. And Christ is the true light, the light of the world. And they refuse to come to him. Charge number one. Charge number two. We see the heart condition of these individuals. They are self-exalting. Do you know that coming to Christ requires humility? That's why scripture tells us, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He will exalt you. We're taught from a very young child to do things on our own. You know, make it, make it and strive hard. Pull yourself up from your bootstraps. And yet the reality is there's nothing we can do to earn salvation. Christ paid it all. The Jews were self-exalting. Jesus put it this way, verses 41 through 44. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Church, this is something that we see in people today. It's called self-righteousness. It's people who want to promote their own spirituality. People that think they've done good, think people that think, look at the things I've done, and they put themselves out there before others so people can say, wow, what a good person they are. And that's what they're living for. That's what they're seeking. Is they're looking for the approval of men and women to say, wow, that person is awesome. Isn't God better than that? Isn't he so far higher than that? That instead we can go, man, our God is awesome. Our God is good. And yet here is the indictment against them is that they're self-exalted. They're not looking to glorify God. This God of the scriptures they read about, they study about, they're not looking to bring him glory. They're looking to promote to others, look all that I know about God. Come and listen to me as I tell you about God. It's self-exalting. And Jesus condemns them for that. He says the only one that we should exalt is the Father. God is the one that should receive all honor and glory. But Jesus doesn't end there. He then gives the third charge against them. And here is the one of shallow belief. The third charge is shallow belief. In verses 45 to 47, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, and that's Moses, on whom you set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? By the way, this is the end of Jesus speaking to them. And he doesn't slow down in coming at them. He didn't compromise on what he's saying. He's still coming straight at them, straight between the eyes. Because they would huff themselves up in the word of Moses. And Moses is the one who we believe. And Jesus says, no, you don't believe him. Just tells them straight up, you, you don't believe him. He says, because if you believed him, you'd believe me. Because everything he wrote about points to me. But instead, all you have is this shallow belief in the scriptures that you know about God, but you don't know him. He doesn't abide in you. Is it possible, church, to
2,000 years later after Jesus spoke these words, for those same things to happen to people today? That there would be people today that would refuse to come to Christ? The answer is, absolutely. Is it possible today there would be people who are more concerned about exalting themselves than exalting God? Once again, yes. Is it possible today, 2,000 years later, there are people who have a shallow belief that they know of Jesus but don't truly know Jesus? You know, it's amazing that the Word of God is living and breathing. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's amazing that this written so long ago still applies to people today. That Jesus brings these charges against the Jews, but the Jews were just unbelievers that he had on trial. And yet the same would stand today. Many of you know at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said some amazing words, scary words, when he said, there will be many on the last day that say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty miracles in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you worked of lawlessness. Huh? Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't done all those things that they attested to doing. They even called him Lord. Wouldn't you assume someone who refers to Jesus as Lord would know him? The same thing, the same condition of heart occurs today that there would be those who would refuse to come to Christ. There would be those who love darkness and don't want to be exposed in the light. And why? Because they're self-exalting. Look, if I come to the light, it shows that I don't have everything together. Like if you wake up in the morning, wake up in the morning, it's dark in the bedroom, and you go up to the mirror and look at the mirror, you don't look all that bad. But you turn the light on, and you go, whoa, turn that light back off. Now, one time I used to have hair, and that hair would be all over the place. Now it's more just the beard, like going sideways or something. But in the dark, everything's fine. Nothing's exposed. But you turn the light on, and all of a sudden you got dried up stuff coming out of your eyes, and It's everywhere. Everything's exposed. And there are people that don't want to come to Christ because they feel like everything will be exposed. And the reality, church, is sure is. But there's no way around it. What are you going to do with all that mess? Just continue turning lights off? I don't want to look at it. Because Jesus says, come to me. He's the one that will cleanse us. He is the one that will forgive us. He is the one that takes care of all that. That I don't have to go try to clean myself up first and then come to Jesus. I come straight to Jesus. He says, come to me. Come. You know, we are told that in Scripture that we're to walk by faith and not by sight. But church, we don't have a blind faith. That there are witnesses, there are those that give testimony that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is God. Jesus himself just put them on the stand. But he says that every man, every child, every woman must come to him. That's not just about knowing him, that he is the only way to God. He would say of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not sufficient just to know about him. We must know him personally. We don't boast in how much Bible study we know or, or anything else. It's do we know him? I gotta say this, church. I'm looking at you. 
Isn't it great to know that we have such a gracious God? Because as we look at the indictments against these people, each of us could fall in any of those categories at any time. At any moment, I could have shallow belief. At any moment, I could fall into my pride and be self-exalting. At any moment, I could decide I'm going to do this and I don't need Jesus' help. I can do this. I would never say those words. But do you know there are times that we do that? That we just go about the day and do our thing instead of saying, Lord, help me today. So although I've never voiced them like, hey, Jesus, I don't need you today, my actions would say another thing. But isn't it amazing to know that our God is a gracious God? That our God who would call us unto himself, our God who would draw us in repentance and faith, will never leave us nor forsake us. That there's assurance in Jesus Christ and the work of the cross. That when Jesus said it is finished, it's finished. There's nothing that we're going to add to it. And there's nothing that we can take away from it. That it's done. That we can be those who can be comforted that our God is a good God. That our God is not a fairy tale. We don't have any little kids in here, but he's not the Easter Bunny or the, the Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus. He is God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Church, may we rejoice in him, knowing that our God is faithful, knowing that there is evidence beyond just walking blindly. People say, well, Christians, they just check their brain in at the door. No, they don't. God has given us plenty of evidence beyond the work that he has done on the cross. He continues to work to this day by drawing people, taking spiritual blinders off their eyes, giving them new hearts and new desires. God is actively at work. Think about someone right now who is an unbeliever. What are the things they say about Jesus? Usually that he's not God. Would they say he's a lunatic? Would they say he was a liar? Some of you are already going in your C.S. Lewis mind and going, oh, is he going to say he's Lord? I'm not going there. But someone say he's a lunatic, and someone just say, you know what, he never existed. Do you know even Jewish history records that Jesus existed? Josephus, a Jewish historian, would record that? That's the most absurd thing. That's like saying the Holocaust. People say, oh, the Holocaust didn't happen. Really? Just because you say something doesn't exist doesn't mean it never existed. Jesus now presents all these witnesses saying, look, I am God. The evidence is there. When we go out and we share with others, don't be afraid and say, well, they just have to have blind faith. No, they don't. There's plenty of evidence of who Jesus Christ is. He is Lord and Savior of all. He is the one who gave himself for us. Church, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning that your son, Jesus, and you are one in union. That if we have seen the Son, we have seen you, the Father. That the Son has been given all authority over all things. Father, you have called us to faith in Jesus Christ. The one who would save us from our sins. Father, thank you for the assurance again this morning that, that if we are children of yours, if we have been sealed with your Spirit, Father, there's assurance of salvation. Father, as we look at the charges that go against unbelievers, those who would refuse 
to come to the light. Father, I pray that if there be anybody in this place today that says, well, I know of Christ. I know of the gospel. I know of what is said about him, of him dying for us. But I have never come to him. Never submitted myself to him. Father, I pray that today would be the day that you draw them in faith to yourself. That they would turn in repentance from themselves and turn to you to follow you. Father, for the rest of us, that you would grow us deeper day by day in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that our days would not be about self-exaltation, but by exalting you, by raising up the name of Christ. God, may you be high and lifted up. May you receive all the honor and glory now and forever. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.